potential and possibilities, discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show, bringing you another really fascinating guest today, helping to create a better tomorrow. Uh, today we have the honor uh, of being joined by Dr. Arya Elfenbein, who is co-founder of a company called Wild Type Biotech Company, uh, focused on producing cultured seafood uh, with a focus on cultivated Pacific salmon uh, from fish cells, uh, sustainably, cost-effectively, uh, that ultimately has all the nutritional benefits of regular salmon without the contaminants, without the mercury, the microplastics, uh, antibiotics, pesticides, anything of that nature, or relying on commercial or uh, fish farming. Uh, born in Israel, raised in Australia, uh, Dr. Elfenbein combines his passion for medicine uh, and uh, unique connections uh, in his childhood to the oceans to ultimately uh, drive wild-type strategy, their health and environmental mission. Uh, after he studied at Dartmouth uh, and Kyoto University, uh, where he got both a PhD and a medical degree, uh, Dr. Elfenbein began his uh, residency at Yale. Uh, he first trained in internal medicine, uh, then completed training in cardiology. Uh, after his residency, uh, he moved to San Francisco. He was working at the time with Professor uh, Deepak uh, Srivastava the, uh, uh, from the Gladstone Institute, uh, you know, doing things like uh, cardiac uh, transdifferentiation and morphogenesis and all sorts of exciting things on that front. Uh, the Gladstone at the time was also known for <laughs> scientific luminaries like Shinya Yamanaka of uh, IPS Nobel fame, and of course, Jennifer Dudna of CRISPR fame. Uh, and during that time at Gladstone Institute, uh, his research focused specifically on cardiac regeneration following heart attacks. And, and a lot of that research has ultimately inspired him to apply a lot of what he learned in terms of the principle of stem cell biology uh, beyond medicine uh, to address another major problem, uh, namely uh, all the growing issues with our current food system and feeding the 8 billion people that this planet has. Uh, when he is not at wild type, uh, Dr. Elfenbein continues to work as a cardiologist with a focus on critical care uh, and lending his expertise and passion, of course, for patients in the ICU. We're lucky to have him with us today. Uh, Dr. Arya Elfenbein, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to come talk to us for a while. Thank you so much for having me. It's great having you. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating set of, uh, of topics we're going to be getting into. Um, I'd like to give you the, the floor for a couple minutes just to, to tell us a little bit more uh, about your background story and a little bit uh, sort of those early days of uh, when you went um, in uh, addressing sort of one of the largest healthcare problems we have in the sense of cardiovascular health uh, towards focusing on uh, an equally big problem, how we're going to feed the rest of the planet. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think like many of us in this field, uh, it, it it's not something that I would have imagined um, I would be doing when, for example, I was uh, training um, in stem cell biology or training in cl um, clinical uh, cardiology. Um, but, I, you know, I think having um, worked in uh, molecular biology at Kyoto University are around the same time and in the same place that Dr. Shinya Yamanaka made um, the incredible discovery of how we can create uh, iPS cells, essentially taking all of the moral issues around stem cell research off the table. Um, it was a, an inspiring moment in, in many ways. I think there, were, there was so much potential to understand uh, just how these fascinating cells um, that could could grow into whatever um, you know they they decided um, could proliferate faster than any other cells in the body and 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 there was so much to to learn. Um, you know, I, I came back to the U.S. and and trained in internal medicine and in cardiology and and kept thinking about this this uh, question of. Um, how this could be applied even beyond the biomedical sciences, um, and uh, it was it was around that time that that I, I visited my uh, childhood home of Australia, saw a lot of parts that um, were uh, previously rainforest and now used for cattle farming, and um, and and thought about whether we could eat meat without eating animals, um, and essentially grow the same cuts of meat. Uh, just outside the animal with everything that, that we learned from, from cells and um, moved to San Francisco to work in Dr. Srivastava's lab. And actually it was, uh, it was, you know, what, what I was studying was a lot of the, the same principles of regeneration using RNA, the same RNA that is now the, the vaccine, um, but in the heart. Um, and still this lingering question uh, stayed with me of, of how we could use this, you know, um, beyond uh, biomedicine. Um, Justin, who's been a close friend since uh, 2011, um, he uh, has a background in diplomacy and had worked in these very food insecure parts of the world like Pakistan, Afghanistan, and, um, you know, thinking through a lot of these um, questions of growing food insecurity. Um, together, we, we decided to, to give it a try. Um, and San Francisco was uh, a unique uh, city at that time in that there were places where you could rent lab benches by the hour. Um, and, and that's what we did on nights and weekends. And that's kind of where, where this whole thing began. Excellent. Excellent. And, and you know, it's very interesting because I, um, I, I took a dive into um, PubMed um, and, and sort of swam through some of your uh, your peer-reviewed publications from back in the day. And the really interesting thing here is, you know, we normally talk about sort of cell-cultured uh, foods, whatever they may be, and, and we think of sort of the public thinking, okay, here's some stem cells here, and here's whatever, the cow or the fish, whatever, and, and voila, there's some magic here. And the really interesting thing in your publications uh, is that beyond stem cells, you were publishing on themes like uh, branching morphogenesis. Uh, you published on angiogenesis. Uh, you published on uh, aspects of the extracellular matrix. And I always wanted to bring this up because um, cells are not, you know, whether it's a heart or whether it's a salmon we're trying to make, there's magic that happens in between the stem cells and that end product. Talk a little bit about how your work with some of the complex uh, morphogenesis, the, the ability to form tissues and, and, and larger structures than the stem cell sort of got you uh, 
shape your strategy for what you're doing currently at Wildlife. And then we'll get into salmon in a little bit. Yeah, you know, I, I think the overarching theme for uh, the research that I'd done in, in grad school and then uh, afterwards um, was one of how cells communicate with each other. Um, looking at growth factors that they perceive in the environment or even create for other cells uh, to know as uh, that they should um, proliferate, for example, or start migrating. So when I was studying angiogenesis or uh, essentially the first stages of uh, blood vessel development, um, there are two contexts where this is um, critically important. The first is um, in uh, tumorigenesis. So as you know, cancers can't really grow beyond a cubic millimeter in size unless they uh, learn how to um, build their own blood vessels, essentially their their own, you know, um, uh, roadways to, to to bring in all the the nutrients um, and and also to to excrete waste. And uh, you know, a lot a lot of people um, and one of the the pioneering scientists in this field was uh, Judah Folkman um, believed that we could. Um, curb the growth of cancers by uh, essentially preventing them from growing their own blood vessels. Um, and the other context where it was important was obviously in cardiac regeneration. So rather, so after a heart attack, a, you know, a blockage in the heart, if we could have the heart regrow part of its own vasculature, um, uh, you know, theoretically, we wouldn't have as much of a need for, you know, bypass operations and, and it would be just a, a more physiologic way to, uh, to bring the nutrients to, uh, to, to the growing, uh, to the recovering heart. And so, you know, studying this from the cellular perspective, from the very, very, you know, like smallest units where, where this starts to happen, um, was a fascinating experience for me. The reason I went to Japan was the, uh, for, for my PhD studies, it was the lab there. Um, was focused on live cell imaging of these um, these cells. And we could see which parts of the cells in real time were being activated um, with certain molecules just being turned on, some being turned off. And it was just absolutely fascinating. Every time I would see how these cells interacted with their environment in real time, how they communicated with, other, with others, and not just with a light microscope, but also to understand the molecular complexity of these interactions. Um, that is, is where, you know, it, it really all began for me um, for um, wanting to um, better appreciate the uh, the complexity of of these um, uh, the, these communication devices that that they have, um, and so that you know w when it came to the, the the later work that that you described in terms of um, uh, the more of a cardiac specific uh, function that that was very similar in that it was um, it was studying how cardiac cells um, can uh, signal to each other to either become scar tissue after a heart attack or potentially regenerate as um, as cardiac uh, muscle tissue. Um, and so so that 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 was the the sort of overarching thing. What's, what what I never would have guessed was that so many of those um, principles have uh, both so much similarity and are so wildly different when we think about them in the context of fish developmental biology. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's let's get into fish. So um, as I mentioned in the intro, the initial target of wild type is the uh, cultivated Pacific salmon. I actually sitting here on the, the east coast of the United States and I don't know if the, so right now I have a sushi restaurant around the corner. I got a great deli down the street where awesome locks and then 
a bunch of other restaurants that make, uh, you know, macadamia encrusted uh, salmon and all sorts of great, I love salmon, but I don't know if I'm eating Pacific or Atlantic. Uh, talk a little bit about, uh, you know, okay, so we have this 3 million or so metric tons of uh, salmon that we, we consume each year. Talk about why the cultivated Pacific salmon, um, and, and tell us some fun facts about why this is the uh, the initial target of choice. Yeah, I mean, you know, a few things. Um, I, I'd say the fact that uh, it's not clear to most of us um, what kind of salmon, where it comes from, <laughs> uh, and, and so forth, you know, just exactly what you described um, is really, I think, where our troubles begin. Um, so 80% of the, the salmon we consume in, in this country is imported. Um, and, um, you know, I'd say something like 70 to 80% of, of the salmon uh, that we uh, consume also is farmed. Um, and that's largely because uh, our wild stocks of, of salmon have plummeted. Um, it's been predicted um, that for, in the case of Atlantic salmon, that by the year 2050, with, with the current trajectory, um, that will become an extinct species, um, which is just... Uh, I mean, I mean, it is stunning to think about salmon. Something we we in, you know see everywhere is so ubiquitous because of fish farming um, could be extinct in in the wild. Um, and one of the issues with with farming, um, which was really meant to take the pressure off the oceans when it was first, um, you know, when it, when it sort of reached its height of popularity, I'd say in the in the seventies and eighties. Uh, what you know? What we found is that there really were a lot of problems around sustainability. So, so there's a there's a macro issue of sustainability, which is that um, if you believe in um, farming as a way to to take the pressure off the oceans, still at at you know. Um, even even until recently, most of the fish feed is dependent on ocean um, bycatch, and so the the feed for these salmon were still coming from the ocean. Uh, the second uh, issues where we were seeing a lot of uh, problems with um, bioaccumulation of toxins as well, um, because these fish were being farmed in such um, uh, concentrated environments, um, there was uh, there were a lot of issues of infestations, and so antibiotics became. Um, at common practice. Um, and what we would often get was these environmental dead zones um, in these coastal waters where the fish were, were farmed. Uh, and so as our waters are unfortunately warming as well, there are fewer places where we can um, farm fish right now. And, and the future of fish farming looks like um, actually some of these on land facilities. And, you know, here I'll, I'll take a step back because fish are, I mean, salmon are such a um, fascinating animal. I mean, yeah. they, they spend their early days in these freshwater rivers and streams, go out to the ocean for, for years, um, sometimes going thousands of kilometers and somehow knowing where to come back to exactly the same stream in which they were born and spending their, their last days there. To recreate something of such complexity on land, um, you need a freshwater environment. You need a saltwater environment as well. Um, these uh, waters need to be cooled, um, usually to something like eight to twelve degrees Celsius. And and actually, the largest one in the world is is outside Miami. Um, and so, you know, thinking about the energy intensity of something like that, it's it's yet to be proven um, exactly, you know, how sustainable that is. And so, with all of the growing demand and the context for for all of the issues we have in terms of keeping up with that. This was why um, you know wild type was was founded. Um, 
And, you know, we, we really do envision a future where wild caught salmon is uh, an incredible uh, product that people should be able to really command a premium from people who are stewards of the ocean and care about the numbers of fish that they take out of the water. Um, there should also be a space for farmed salmon and for um, products like a plant based salmon. Um, and, and, you know, in, in our case, we wanted to create something that really had the same uh, nutritional composition, um, but not just, you know, in terms of nutrients, but that these were actually salmon proteins, salmon fats produced by salmon cells. And, and that was, you know, the impetus behind, um, pursuing, uh, the, the, the technologies that, that we use to, to grow salmon. Um, and in terms of why do we start with salmon? Uh, you know, in, in the U.S., it's the most consumed fin fish, um, uh, tuna is second. Um, the, uh, the, the, the second is that it's one of the most versatile, uh, fish. So, um, when we think about culinary traditions, I mean, salmon is something that, you know, just, just like you said, you know, we can have as locks on a bagel. We can have, uh, uh, you know, minced salmon in a salmon roll. Um, we can have a salmon fillet. Um, and that's something you don't see for a lot of fish, like, I don't know, mackerel or halibut or something like that. Um, and so that, that versatility, I think, really gave us an opportunity to showcase a lot of um, what um, cellular agriculture uh, can do. And so this was, um, you know, the, these are these are a few of the reasons why why we began with salmon. And I, I will say just that the last one is that when when we thought about what we would create first, um, we we didn't want to create ground beef. Um, sure. We felt like there, you know. I don't know if, if the world needs more of that. And we wanted to create something with a lot of the um, the benefits of, let's say, omega-3s, omega-6 uh, fatty acids um, and, and fewer of the, the saturated fats. And I think health was an important aspect. It was really an opportunity to create something that was free of all of these pervasive contaminants that are in our in our seafood system. Absolutely. And speaking along those lines, I, I you know, that's what I think is I was uh, sort of, thinking a bit about um before our discussion obviously salmon um aside from all those benefits you mentioned you mentioned the um the nutritional the omegas and so forth it, it's a fatty fish and, and and once again they got me thinking to um when we talk about the sort of the production okay we have some stem cells we have interesting scaffolds if you could talk a little bit about that but uh challenges um in terms of biasing production towards fatty uh, fatty properties and I once again thinking to your cardiovascular expert you don't want to ever make a fatty heart <laughs> um any interesting right. stories there in terms of uh you know lipidogenesis or or, <laughs> or whatever yeah. unique things go into uh that organoleptic and nutritional requirement of the tissue in this particular case. Yeah, you know, you know, one of the things that maybe I'd just start with a, a microanatomy uh, lesson that I learned okay. um, was before we started um, wild type, I thought that the white striations that you see in salmon um, are similar to the um, to, to what marbling is for beef. Um, That's what I and, thought. <laughs> yeah, and 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 they're not. They're okay. they're actually you know for for terrestrial animals like us. Um, muscles are largely uh, attached to bones, and that enables us to, to ambulate. Um, and, and for fish, muscles are largely attached to other muscles. And so um, that enables, uh, you know, sort of the, a lot of the complex maneuvers that um, their fins and tails will, will use. And so, so these, uh, these areas of um, 
white bands or, or striations that are called uh, myokama or myokamata. Um, they, they're these little fibrous regions, actually, where muscles attach to other muscles. Um, and so this is, you know, it's, it's an important part of the texture. It's also a very important part of the appearance. When you see something, you know, when you see raw salmon, it's, it's very uh, immediately recognizable. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and you know the, the the first step was you know thinking through how to recreate that. It's also interestingly a place that um, that salmon will store some of their fats. So so you know in in ways that are are maybe different from from the you know how. Um, mammals do. Um, and some of the fats are also stored outside of the um, cells, which is which does not happen as much um, in, in non-fish species. And so, so these are all kind of the, these fascinating uh, learnings that, um, they, that guided our work on both um, muscle creation and um, uh, as, as well as adipogenesis or the uh, formation of, uh, of fat cells and fat tissue. Um, this is something that you know still hasn't really been done at um, at large scale um, in the biomedical industry. There hasn't been as much of a need to to grow enormous amounts of um, fat tissue, for example. Um, and so, so it's something that that we're we're still very much learning on the way. And there are some very unique challenges in, in when we think about growing um, fat cells versus um, uh, cells of other lineages in um, uh, within fish. Um, you know, so wild type, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, is definitely a, a company with a lot of firsts. You know, we're just talking about sort of you can be the first in terms of the cultivated salmon. Uh, another first is just your your scale up. Um, you, you know, you recently um, sort of christened this uh, pilot scale plant. And, and you know, we, once again, we have this figure uh, that I mentioned at the beginning. So we have this 200 million tons or so of of, of fish around the world, salmon, about 3 million metric tons of that. Um, and the interesting thing, uh, as you know, I've gotten into this topic, um, you know, looking back, um, say 10 or 15 years, you know, everyone was talking about bioprocessing capability and it was all going to be focused on, you know, the monoclonal antibodies and the gene therapies and so forth. But it's really amazing how many organizations now on sort of the pharma side are developing these, these uh, stem cell, uh, you know, stem cell scale up capabilities to help take sort of the bench work uh, through the process to, to get companies uh, ready for uh, these larger quantities, which should definitely be required. Uh, you know, you've uh, put together this, this, uh, plant recently uh, and you, you've moved a lot quicker than a lot of other companies in this sense um talk about the uh the new facility and and sort of where that's taking you uh, beyond the bench now and sort of some of the scale that uh you're looking at to practice there yeah i mean you know the first thing i'd say is we certainly uh didn't know what we didn't know when we when we started this and um scaling up uh felt you know like it would be uh, a larger version of what we had gotten to work, um, you know, on the bench scale. And uh, to some extent that was true, but uh, there, there are a lot of things we've, um, we've learned along the way because uh, nobody has grown fish cells at the kind of scale we would need to, to have any kind of meaningful uh, impact. And so, you know, one of the first hypotheses we wanted to test was, could we adopt a strategy that was more like beer brewing than um, 
the pharmaceutical um, model of um, single-use uh, systems, for example. Um, and by that, I mean, um, you know, the um, a, a lot of the the, the medications, the, the drugs that are produced in the pharmaceutical industry rely on um, either fermentative processes or, um, you know, cell culture um, that are done in very expensive single-use plastic bags, um, sometimes $10,000 for one of these plastic bags, and then it's discarded at the end. Yeah. And so this is antithetical to our mission for a few reasons. Right. First of all, it's, you know, the use of plastics. Um, the second is, uh, you know, when you think about uh, sustainability, and, the, and the, the, the final thing isn't so much our mission, but this is um, a, a, there's an intrinsic cost model there that is not tenable for our industry as we're really creating a commodity product. Um and so, so we, you know, we derived a lot of inspiration from the um, the brewing industries and designed some of our own tanks um, in in ways that were much closer to uh, a, a brewing system. And so, when people come to to visit the the um, pilot plant that you're describing in San Francisco, um, it it feels actually very familiar in that sense. They they sort of see these steel tanks that that look like ones we see in in breweries and. Um, uh, and, and that's, that's where the, the process begins. The thing is that that's actually just the first step and growing a lot of cells in, in a tank, um, is, you know, is one thing, but these cells don't know how to spontaneously organize into muscle and fat and structures and, and that a whole, you know, next step of, of how to, you know, get these cells to become a product, uh, is one that also hasn't been done at, at any sort of meaningful scale in the past. Um, and that's involved a lot of design um, as well, and, and sort of you know uh, translating a lot of the findings we've had from you know bench scale. Really, what was a handmade process mm -hmm. of combining these cells and a, and a scaffold, and, and and trying to envision how that could be done in a semi-automated and hopefully eventually a, a completely automated system um, at at large scale. And it's something you know that's a journey we're we're still very much uh, still on. Exciting. So, Arya, so first uh, cultivated salmon, first seafood pilot plant, another major first, uh, the first cultivated seafood brand to raise over $100 million in venture capital financing. You have uh, uh, the Temasek organization from Singapore. You got the world's largest agribusiness in Cargill. You got some private investors, Jeff Bezos, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Robert Downey Jr. I, I never heard of them before, but uh, I mean, where did you uh, talk about? I mean, I, I, I've gone on venture capital road trips in the past and, and raised my share of funding, but talk a little bit about um, the environment. Obviously, this is a cell culture food is very hot. I see a lot of brands, but $100 million is extremely impressive. Talk a little bit about your time on the road uh, in, in, in bringing together this uh, fascinating syndicate that you have here. Yeah, you know, I think the the most interesting time of our um, fundraising journey was was in the very beginning, um, and and seeing what people's reactions were, and you know, this was in 2017, um, and even at that time, it, it wasn't that long ago. But even at that time, you know, people saw the promise of something like this, really believed that that this is something that um, could be great, but we're very, um, we're, we're very fearful of actually investing. And, um, we, we, you know, the, 
the trips that we'd make up and down the the valley to to you know various um vcs and, and other investors um the common theme was like wow this is this is an incredible idea this is something i could change the world um let us know when other people are interested um and it, it was very disheartening in in those early days and and we were very lucky to through all of that find incredible partners in um spark capital uh they um were a team who just not only really believed in this and um and believed in in our ability to um to to actually make this work uh but but also were were willing to take that risk um which you know truly is what uh, venture capital yep. um is and, and should be um and then you know for our second round we we found um just similarly uh just incredible partners in in CRV but you know I, I, until those two firms um until you know we had met those two firms and 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 really like it, it it was it was a very difficult um and and you know we process that i think left left us both uh, just enemy um uh, pretty crestfallen after a lot of those meetings sure. um and so you know now where alternative proteins um are uh certainly more part of the the public discourse and and people um think of it as as more of a hot field um it's it's i think uh a, a very different context to to envision this but but it really was um it was tough <laughs> it was very tough it it still very much is i think that um whether um you know a, a lot of the the underlying assumptions around being able to reach price parity to dip below price parity to be able to scale up to have a meaningful um impact in the world um have still yet to be proven and and we often think about uh electric vehicles in that sense and the first prius in in 1996 was uh it was it was okay i mean it was nothing great and it really took <laughs> 25 years and even uh, you know further to think about um the commitment in California for example to not sell any um uh, combustion engines um in from the year 2035 onwards mm -hmm. uh that's an enormous journey uh and i think it's you know the the parallels are, are very similar in terms of what we need to achieve in um in cultivated meat and seafood and, and, and talking about risk for a moment, you know, in, in addition, obviously, to uh, dealing with the, the sort of the private equity and the venture capital community, you, you've also uh, been very successful in, in sort of lining up uh, distributors ahead of time. Um, you uh, have some agreements with a group called Snow Fox, which is uh, involved in, uh, in grocery store uh, sushi bars, uh, something called Poke Works, which is, uh, you know, the, um, the the casual poke bowl uh, uh, thing. Um How's that been? I mean, are, are these, and obviously nothing confidential here, but are, are, um, are, are these groups looking to, you know, ultimately, once, once you have required, uh, you know, acquired the ability and the scale, uh, are they looking to sort of eliminate all salmon and, and, and totally go with the cultivated? What's, what's some of the, uh, the stuff you're talking about? I know and these are pre-distribution pre deals, but still, what are some of the things you can yeah, tell us about there? But, but it's, it's a great question because I, I think it, it really... Um, it it really hints at w where people's minds are at, and right. and and I think that um, when we think about the conventional you know conventional food today and and the industries driving it, 
I think they see the, the writing on the wall um, in terms of sustainability, in terms of, you know, for, for seafood um, issues of human rights and, and slavery that uh, still plague uh, conventional seafood production. Um, and it's it's been amazing to to see uh people we wouldn't think of as as interested in something like this um uh see optimism in it and and really believe in this and 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 want to to take that risk um to 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 mitigate all, a lot of these deleterious consequences that we all know is just uh is not going to to work in the end in terms of overall sustainability and so you know in the case of Cargill, um, it, it, you know, took us a, a, a lot of conversations to, to really understand, um, you know, from, from their side, how, um, how they see cultivated seafood, um, you know, emerging, um, with respect to, um, some of their, um, their own, you know, current uh, fishing operations and, um, and fish farming operations. Um, and so th these are, these are, um, you know, very, complex but but super interesting ways to think about how market forces can can shape these over time and and eventually like it, it all sort of led to to one place and and that was a recognition that our current system of producing seafood just simply wouldn't be enough um it just simply would not be able to catch up to, to the demand and, and what you have then in the future if you play that tape forward is is a world where only the the super rich can afford great meat and seafood um or we destroy the planet in the process of just you know harvesting the last possible fish that that, that we can um and i think that each of the uh the, the partners that we've um you know met along the way uh has just seen like un understands what what that future you know th those two options look like and and has felt the optimism towards a you know a third option where we actually are able to take the pressure off the oceans are able to produce something that is free of of all of these uh toxins and and produce them in a way that is more like beer brewing than yeah. um you know dragging ocean size or, i mean city-sized nets you know along the bottom of the ocean yeah. <laughs> to try to just catch every fish that that we can absolutely um I mean, one other thing I, I, I noticed in your materials, and I, I haven't seen this, I guess, because you, you're, you're much more advanced than, than some of the other cell culture food companies I've talked to. But you have written about the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, once you have production and distribution, you still have uh, the FDA there that, uh, you know, this is part of Food and, <laughs> and Drug Administration. I, I, I've been in my career to the FDA, primarily on the food side and the uh, sort of the, the food ingredient side. Um what if you could say what are some of the things that you have to think about because obviously this is a a novel food uh not an ingredient not a drug but nonetheless something that goes through their their gauntlet of review what types of things are you focusing on what what do you need think you need to prepare for in terms of um uh, the uh the fda yeah um you know we've been talking to fda for uh, almost three years now and um each time we we have a discussion with the agency, I I have to say I'm I'm, I'm always um, really impressed by the thoughtfulness of of the, uh, the their approach, um, and and in many ways uh, it really has been a uh, a process where they have asked you know to to learn from us as we have asked to to learn from them, and you know I, I can give an example in the, in the very beginning. Um, 
the the, the first uh, one of the first meetings we had with with, with FDA, we were um, you know describing uh, what our imagined approach would be, and it would be similar to the same standards of food safety as for conventional fish, and you know looking for some of the same um, toxins that might be present in fish, and we're describing some of these toxins, and and the people on the call at the FDA said. Wait a second. Are you, are you concerned that you know, like, uh, mercury is going to be in your product? And I said, like, of course not. What, what, what do you mean? And it's like, well, well, why are we discussing that? That's not one of the inputs, and it's not one of the, uh, you know, and it's not in the <laughs> uh, end product, and it's not in the, in the in the process. So, 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 why is this a, um, a, like, why is this even part of the conversation? And it completely changed the way that I, you know, thought about um, what what regulation for such a novel food looks like. And when we think about it in you know, the, within the current rubrics of of how food regulation proceeds, it it first of all makes more sense, and and second of all, it allows us to to um, really come to m uh, clarity much uh, much faster in terms of identifying all of those inputs, um, being very transparent about uh, what goes into this, exactly how it's made, um, and uh, all of the testing that's done afterwards, um, making sure that it you know like basically will just be at the highest uh, standards of, of food safety. And in that sense, what has emerged is a realization that what we create is actually not that controversial. Mm -hmm. So the main ingredient, salmon cells, has been around in salmon since, you know, the beginning of salmon. Yep. And so that is not so much a controversial uh, ingredient um, at all. Um, everything we feed the salmon cells are things that are present in our food system, like sugars and fats and, you know, amino acids and, and so forth. And everything that is in our scaffold, um, these are all plant-based ingredients that similarly, uh, you know, have uh, have been around our food system. And so it, it is the process that's new and it's a novel food in that, you know, it's it's a different way to to create this. But mm -hmm. when when we've thought through this and and even, you know, tried to envision what um, you know, potential consequences might might exist um from combining these things in in this new way and you know, discussing those and uh, you know, writing them out and working with with food safety experts, um, what we found is much more simplicity than you know than than complexity and so that's a maybe a long way to say that this this process has been um, actually quite illuminating and and a very um very interesting one and i think uh will will hopefully also instill a lot of confidence for for our future customers in terms of the thoughtfulness of the approach from from both sides as as we've pursued um regulatory approval excellent really excellent are you what um Obviously, you're 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 very focused on salmon, but um, what what's yeah. uh you know in the pipeline that you can talk about? And then I you know I, I jokingly asked this question: if if uh if some billionaire came along and wanted you to make X, well, you have the, you have those billionaires already. But um, has any <laughs> has anyone come along and said uh, no? Let's make Y and Z, <laughs> uh, viper fish, giant squid, whatever it may be, anything odd that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we, we we have gotten requests for dinosaurs, um, and <laughs> um, I think that you know that's that's still much better served in you know great books and movies like Jurassic sure. Park. But um, I, uh, you know, in terms of of what what's next, I I think that there's so much to be done for you know not just ocean conservation, but for um, 
creating more healthy um, uh, seafoods. Um, you know, our, our focus really is on uh, marine um, species, um, and so there there are a bunch of others that we're already working on. Um, and when when we think through, you know, what products we we want to create, I think these are ones that. Um, first of all, they they need to be great food products, um, and if they're not, uh, we're not going to have our our impact, um, and and we're not going to sway uh, future customers in terms of choosing, uh, you know, a, a product like ours over uh, conventional seafood. Um, and it's one of the reasons why our our focus has really been a, been a culinary one from the beginning. So everything from um, uh, are the, the photos that, that we show of, of the products that we're now very proud of, um, to, to our website. Like these are food focused. They are, you know, not like lab experiments. These right. are not science. Like we are a food company at our core. And so these need to be products that delight customers, that people are really excited to, to eat. If, if people aren't choosing this over conventional seafood and it's just a novelty, that novelty will, will pass. Um, and, and, you know, we won't be able to, to do anything for our oceans at that point. And so, so that that's the really the first criterion. The the second I'd say is that um, you know these have to have some either ecologic or or health uh, impact. And so if we think about something like uh, a a threatened species like bluefin tuna or one that is especially high in um, toxins like uh, mm -hmm. mercury or you know um, is problematic for other reasons in terms of um, how it's harvested. Um, for example, um, when you think about the harvesting of, um, uh, of eel production, it's, it's, you know, a fascinating, um, industry in that we don't really understand how eels reproduce in the wild. And so, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's, it's led to a lot of, um, you know, very frank realizations of the, complete unsustainability of, of the, the current practices. And so these are the guiding principles for, um, for the, the selection and product development. Um, but, you know, in the end, they, they need to be foods that we're excited about. Um, and, and that's, that's what we're working towards. Outstanding. Outstanding. You know, it's a fascinating story. I, uh, I look forward to, uh, before the show, I went on, uh, uh, the Snow Fox site, and I looked around for a location near me right now, but I, I, I don't think they're, they're but, but whatever. I, I'm, I'm going to be looking forward to uh, to trying the product at some point, Thank you because um, you know, you're obviously getting close to the finish line, and it's an extremely exciting story, and it's really, uh, it's elegant. Uh, it, it definitely uh, fills such a major, you know, think of talk unmet medical needs. It filled such a major unmet need on on so many other levels. So it's it's really exciting, and I really wish you the best with all of this. Um, Thank you. I, I really appreciate your your interest in in this field, and you know, and and enthusiasm. Um, it's, it, it is a, an exciting segment. I think uh, uh, yeah, I called it a niche a few years ago, but it's just so hot now, and I'm I'm really excited to see all, all of this happening. Um, for okay. um, thanks. For, uh, for everybody that uh, is going to be uh, listening to this particular episode uh, of our show across the various podcast networks uh, or watching on our YouTube channel, uh, again, you've been listening to Dr. Arya Elfenbein, co-founder of Wild Type. 
Uh, all right, I want to I want to thank you for taking the the time out of your schedule to come talk to us for a little while. Uh, obviously, thank you for everything you're doing there. It's uh, wild type, and as we like to say on our show, uh, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow through what you're doing. It's like an amazing story, and once again, I wish you the best with all of it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Good seeing you.